What's the evidence for heaven? Is there proof that the soul continues to live after we die and the Christian version of heaven is actually true? Well, we have a friend of mine, uh, one of the most well-known apologists today, New York Times best-selling author. In fact, his life was the feature of a major motion picture. You know him from The Case for Christ, but we have with us today Lee Strobel to talk about his new book on The Case for Heaven. Lee, I appreciate you coming back for a third time on the show, and I, I love your book. Let's just Thanks. jump right in because there's so sure. much to talk about. But one yeah. of the things you do is in your books, The Case for Christ, Case for Grace, you tell stories. Mm. And this book, The Case for Heaven, starts with a very personal story yeah. that motivated you to take your journalistic skills and investigate this. Tell me the story yeah. that you opened the book with. Yeah, it happened 10 years ago. Um, my wife found me unconscious on the bedroom floor. Uh, she called an ambulance. Uh, I woke up in the emergency room and the doctor looked down at me and said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And then I fell unconscious again. Um, I had an unusual condition called hyponatremia, which is a, a precipitous drop in blood sodium level. Uh, I lost a kidney as part of it. And um, uh, I hovered between life and death. Um, I, I, the next step would have been a coma and then dying. Uh, which was a very clarifying experience. You know, I've never had that happen before. And I was going to say I recommend it, but I don't recommend it. But uh, I did learn a lot from it. Um, you know, I, as a Christian, I was convinced that if I were to die, um, I would be immediately in the presence of God forever. Um, but you know, I still had the skeptical streak uh, with my background in journalism and law. And I, I wondered, uh, you know, when you're really faced with the reality of dying, um, how do I know? Is this consistent with science and with philosophy and theology and faith and et cetera? How do I know this is real? And that was sort of the seeds that was planted that later, uh, just as of next week, <laughs> comes to fruition with the publication of The Case for Heaven. Well, I think people are going to love it, and it fits right into the series of case books that you've done. But there's also another story that you, you share. And I asked you if it was okay to ask you about this because I can only imagine it's a very personal story. Yeah. It's about something your father said to you about how much love he had for you. And yeah. I'm wondering if you could share that story, but also why you share it in the book and how, mm. what you think will happen in heaven with your father. Well, um, I had a very difficult relationship with my father. And um, a lot of it was my fault. I, I was a rebellious kid, caused all kinds of trouble for him. And, and uh, we had a big blowout argument on the eve of my high school graduation. And in the midst of that, he looked at me and said, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. And um, I stalked out of the house, never intending to return, moved into an apartment um, about 40 miles away. And uh, we, we never really reconciled. We had a we had a that was rec that was uh, brokered by my mom and it kind of brought us back together but we never talked about it we never really resolved our issues and um, my father was a Christian and um, now I'm a Christian and as I was interviewing Scott McKnight the theologian and New Testament scholar about heaven one of the things he said is you know I think the first 10 minutes of heaven first hour of heaven is going to be all about reconciliation and that we're going to have a perfect desire to reconcile with people who we died without having really resolved the issues between us. And it really got me thinking about me and my dad, because I believe my dad's in heaven. I believe I'm going to heaven. And I just feel so motivated now, and I know I'll be motivated even more so in heaven to reconcile with my dad, to throw my arms around him and say, look, I am so sorry for the way I contributed to our the rift between us. And, and I really believe my father is going to throw his arms around me and he's going to say the same thing. And we're going to be able to have in heaven the kind of father-son relationship that we never had in this world. Um, and that, that's really an appeal to me. That, that, that really, uh, that's appealing. It, it, it makes me want to long um, uh, for that experience. Now, Lee, you said that's an appeal. 
yeah. I found in my experience with both Christians and non-Christians, we have what you might we might call an emaciated view of heaven. <laughs> right. That we're just not looking forward to it. Playing a harp, it's boring. Right. Being right. The way we understand. Before we look at the evidence, it seems to me anybody's only really going to want to consider the philosophical, theological, historical, scientific data if they find the idea of heaven compelling in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what's a big misconception maybe that Christians or non-Christians have, and what is it to you at its core that makes heaven so appealing? Well, I think the biggest misconception you hit on, it's, it's an ethereal place. It's mm-hmm. in the cloud somewhere. It's just souls, disembodied souls that are floating around. But the Bible doesn't describe it that way. Uh, we see in Revelation that God did not say, I'm going to make new things. He says, I'm going to make everything new. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so I believe that means recreating our world. And it'll be without sin. It'll be the Garden of Eden, except global. And um, we will experience a very physical afterlife. It will be theocentric in the sense that it will be focused on God. But at the same time, there'll be relationships. There'll be friendships. There'll be reconciliations. There'll be uh, love between our brothers and our sisters. Uh, be, uh, and, you know, I, I think the one metaphor that Jesus used that especially is appealing to me, I believe it was in John 14, verses 1 and 2, and he said um, to his disciples, he said basically, look, don't, don't fear death, uh, because in my Father's house there are many rooms. And I think this metaphor of home is what appeals to me the most. Um, mm. You know, uh, if you've ever traveled internationally and maybe in a primitive country, I've been to India, for instance, for long periods of time, and you're, it, it, conditions are difficult and you're living out of a knapsack and, and, and life is tough and, and you begin to long for home. You get homesick. And when you finally get home, it's such a place of security and warmth and love and and, and, and you crawl into your own bed and it feels so good. That's the metaphor that Jesus is using to describe what the appeal of heaven is, that this is not our home. We're going to be a lot more, spend a lot more time in our heavenly home than we will in our earthly home. And um, so I love that. I love that metaphor. Uh, it says to me that, uh, you know, the Bible says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived of um, what God has prepared for those that love him. So, you know, the Bible does not give us a lot of detail, um, but it uses metaphors. And I I believe this because we can't comprehend what heaven is like right now. We we wouldn't understand it. We wouldn't get it. Um, And so he uses these metaphors like a home to communicate to us the the sense of security and love that we would feel in in a home like that. Um, It's interesting, for instance, that in this world, we have a certain color spectrum because of the sun and the light of the sun. But it's going to be different in heaven. We're going to see colors that we don't see in this world. Hmm. Now, how do you explain a new color to someone who has never uh-huh. seen it? You can't really. So the Bible, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared. So it drops these hints and they're tantalizing hints and they're appealing hints to me. Recently on a trip to Israel, I got on the bus after traveling, I don't know, 20, 30 hours, and our (laughs) host looked at me and he said, welcome home. Mm. And I paused and I thought, there's something that rings true about that, even though I've only visited there a few weeks of my life. That's the old Jerusalem. Right. Our hearts resonate with the new Jerusalem in a deep way that this is what we're made for. Yes, now, absolutely. Gonna, let's start to jump into some of the evidence here. But first, yeah. I already see some great questions. People uh, loading on here. Hold on. We're going to come back towards the end. And the best two questions Lee gets to dis- decide for whatever reason. <laughs> Interesting, fun, challenging. We'll send you two signed. Uh, we'll send two signed books of The Case for Heaven, which releases soon. So hang on with those questions. Make sure you copy and paste them so you can post them at the end. Now, you start with an interview with a friend and a colleague of mine. Uh, Chloe yeah. Jones from Biola, who's right. written a book called Immortal. Yes. I love that book. It's a great book. Remind us the heart of his claim and why you started your case for heaven with that chapter. Well, it's really a book about the fear of death. Um, and the 
recognizes there's a fear of death. In Hebrews 2, verse 15, it talks about people being enslaved to a fear of death. Even David expresses a fear of death in one of the Psalms. So um, this is, I think, pretty much a, a very common phobia that people have about dying. And one of the things he deals with in the book is how people cope with that. They, 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 they deny it. Uh, they try to delay it. They distract themselves from it. And um, they try to um, leave a mark so that somehow they'll be remembered. Um, uh, you know, he, uh, Ecclesiastes says, God has planted eternity in our hearts. And the Hebrew is, is kind of um, uh, um, obscure here, but uh, most scholars say it means that God has planted in us a desire to live forever. And what Clay talks about is how people try to live forever without God. Hmm. And so in the positive sense, it causes people to uh, leave a mark in the world through a great achievement, through designing a terrific a beautiful cathedral or painting an incredible painting or, um, um, you know, inventing something and maybe their name will go on through history. Uh, but a lot of people do it through negative um, actions. They don't, they don't care. They just want their name to remember, be remembered. For instance, Mark David Chapman, who killed John Lennon, said uh, he wanted to deal it, uh, to do this, to steal some of his fame. Um, and so you look at the, the, the Columbine killers and, and many of these mass killers will say, you know, I wanted my name to be remembered. Um, and so it, it motivates people in, in different ways. And um, uh, the answer to it, I think, is in Hebrews 2.15, where it says Jesus is the antidote for our fear of death. A robust view of Jesus uh, is our answer to this phobia that many people have about dying. When I first read his book and he said the fear of dying is the primary motivator yeah. of philosophy in our lives, I thought yeah. he was overstating it. And then when I was done with the book, I thought, well, I think he's probably <laughs> on to something. My, my favorite part is he had like about a page and a half of all these so-called health gurus who yes. say like run and you'll be healthy, grape nut diet, low fat. And he starts listing dead at 52, 55, right. 60. I thought, <laughs> wow. We yeah. don't have the control we think we have, and yeah. that fear of death motivates us in different ways. Now he yeah has one of the go ahead. I was gonna say I was gonna say one of the uh, examples he uses is uh, the way some people have their bodies frozen at death with yes. the idea that <laughs> yeah. when when a cure is discovered for whatever killed them they could be thawed out and revived. And he said there's a big problem with that. He said if you ever poured Coca Cola over a glass that had uh, ice in it. Well, yeah, you hear a cracking sound. It goes crack, crack, crack. That's called sonic fracturing. And he said, this is what happens to a brain or an organ when they try to thaw it out. Crack, crack, crack. And in fact, one cryonics company said, oh, well, you just have to glue stuff back together or sew it back together. He said, now you got Frankenstein. <laughs> so, wow. So, and, and the other thing he said is, you know, some people try to live on through their families. They have a large family with the hope that their name will be uh, remembered through the generations. But he said, uh, do you know the name of your great-great-grandparents? Most people don't. I don't know the names of my great-great-grandparents. And if you do, do you care? No, you don't care. They're dead. <laughs> and so all these fruitless efforts to try to uh, live on, even as a footnote in history, it's just not, doesn't work. Had a little comment about the sound. I think I just fixed it here. Let me know if that works oh, good. better. Looks oh, like I was okay. a little little too quiet but let, let's keep going because he has this yeah. idea called symbolic immortality that we can't yeah. achieve real immortality on our own but we come up with these projects such as right. writing a book right so our name and legacy will last beyond us and i'm sure you thought about this but yeah. i'm thinking okay how do we know that lee strobel this christian who wants to believe in heaven isn't also just partaking in his own <laughs> symbolic immortal project by writing the case for heaven. Well, I will say very honestly that uh, when I was an atheist, I was very concerned about this kind of symbolic immortality. I mm. remember, no kidding, I kept a current copy of my curriculum vitae, my resume, in the upper desk, uh, upper drawer of my desk, so that if I were to die my wife could make sure that my obituary covered all the bases of all the things I accomplished wow. at the Chicago. I, I literally did that because I wanted to, I wanted to have my obituary in the New York times. Um, 
and I, I can honestly say it's, it's really not a motivation anymore. Uh, it, it's really not. Um, I write books because I believe God is leading me to write those books. And that's how I choose what to write through prayer and, and um, other spiritual disciplines to try to, to discern what God wants me to work on. Um, and you know what? I know that I'm not going to live on through my books. They're going to be totally forgotten in, in just a few years. Nobody will have any idea. I'll give you a funny example, Sean. When we did the movie on my life, um, I was so excited because we got Faye Dunaway to be in the movie. Now, Faye Dunaway, in my generation, she won the Academy Award. She won Golden Globe. She was one of the, the great actresses of my generation. And she had become a believing Catholic, and she wanted to be in a Christian movie. So she agreed to be in our movie. And I was so excited. Oh, my goodness. And I would go up to people who were like 25 years old. i say, we got Faye Dunaway in our movie. <laughs> and they looked at me like, who? They wow. had no idea. And it just wow. reminded me. It reminded me of the story that um, Clay Jones tells in his books about a book about Andy Warhol, uh, the yeah. artist who said, uh, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And then a few years ago, a commercial said, somebody once said, we'll all be famous for 15 minutes. They even dropped his name. His fame didn't even last. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, so you start off this book interviewing Dr. Clay Jones and yeah. makes the point that it's written on our hearts, this desire for eternity. Yeah. And then you shift and you say, okay, is there evidence for a soul? Now, if yeah. there's more to us than just the body, it doesn't prove that Christianity is true. It doesn't right. prove heaven is true, but it right. seems like it's a necessary condition that makes heaven yeah. reasonable and plausible. I now, think I that's right. I thought it was interesting. Earlier in the case for Creator, you interviewed J.P. Moreland about evidence for the soul. Yeah. He's a philosopher. In this yes. book, you interviewed Sharon, I got to say Dierks. it right, Dierks, right, who's a scientist. Right, a neuroscientist with a Ph.D. from Cambridge University. Now, tell me her story to faith, and then I want to consider some of the evidence you found compelling that she shared. Yeah, she was an atheist. And um, uh, as a youngster, she was convinced that you cannot be a scientist and an and a Christian at the same time. She went off to the university, and a Christian organization had a panel discussion of Christians uh, for incoming freshmen. And, um, and they said, no, you can be a Bible-believing Christian and a scientist at the same time. And she, she said, wow, I can't, yeah, I guess that's true. So she investigated Christianity, became convinced it was true, and ended up getting her PhD in astrophysics. So she's an wow. astrophysicist today, uh, doctor, um, um, or no, I, I take that back. Um, I'm thinking of Sarah Sylviander, um, who was also interviewed in the book. Um, but uh, Sharon Dirick, same thing. Uh, she in, uh, investigated Christianity, became convinced that science and faith are not at war, but they're compatible when done right. And she ended up becoming a Christian and studying at Cambridge University and becoming a neuroscientist. So she makes this case for the reality of the soul and makes yeah. a lot of different points you kind of lay out in the chapter. Yeah. Tell me, as somebody who's obviously not a neuroscientist, what you found most compelling or interesting of the case that she made. Well, she wrote a book called, um, if I can remember the exact title, uh, Am I Just My Brain? Um, or is there more to us? Do we have an immaterial spirit, a consciousness, a soul? And uh, she makes the point that um, Leibniz said that for two things to be the same, they have to be identical in terms of their functioning. And she said physical brain and the immaterial spirit or consciousness are not the same. She said, um, you know, I can measure the electrical activity of the brain, but I can't see your thoughts. And she used a, um, a thought experiment. She said, you know, the consciousness, the spirit, the soul is the seat of our um, uh, introspection, uh, of, our, of our will, of our memories and so forth. Okay. And she said, imagine... There's a woman they marry who is the world's leading expert on the human eye, on vision. She understands the mechanics of how it works better than any scientist in the world. She knows how the optic nerve functions, how images are carried through the brain, how the physics of all of this works. She understands it all, but she's born blind. Hmm. What if all of a sudden she received her eyesight? At that moment, would she know anything new about eyesight 
Yeah, I think she would. She'd have the experience of seeing. And that is the first person experience. That is the immaterial consciousness or soul of an individual. Um, it, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the difference between reading a review of a concert and going to the concert. You know, someone can describe everything that happened to the concert, how, how warm it was in there, how loud the music was, what songs were sung. But in the end, you kind of got to be there. And that is the, um, the difference between our consciousness and our physical brain. Um, so our physical brain, we can map activities and they correlate to our consciousness, but they are not the same. And so she makes a lot of arguments in the book. But I think that was a, a pretty compelling picture. To me, I think the key point you're making is that we can track in the brain when somebody is conscious. We can track right. when somebody's sad or track when somebody's thinking. That's but right. That's very different than what they're thinking about the experience exactly. of sadness and consciousness goes beyond the brain itself and cries that's out right. for an immaterial reality. I think that's the that's the point that she's making amongst others. That's that exactly right. Now. Yeah. One response to this, of course, there's many naturalistic response to the soul. You yeah. get into some of them. We don't have time to get into all of them. But one is just physicalism outright, rejects anything immaterial, and wants to reduce consciousness down just to physical matter, which, of course, right. would mean that all our behavior are just chemicals in motion. And we have no, no free will. such thing as free will that it's an illusion. Right. Why do you reject that naturalistic explanation? Yeah. Um, first of all, there is no mechanism that any scientist or philosopher has been able to come up with to explain how we get from just a physical brain to a brain that has this dimension of consciousness, even if it's an illusion of consciousness. However, if God created us, he did so as an immaterial mind, a disembodied mind. And if he made us in his image, it would make total sense that we would also have that immaterial dimension to who we are. So it's, um, uh, it makes sense under theism. It doesn't really make sense under um, a, a physicalist kind of interpretation. Um, Sam Harris, the uh, atheist um, uh, philosopher, uh, says uh, flat out, there is no such thing as free will. Well, could we, if that were true, could we really function as a society? Hmm. If that were literally true, I couldn't reward someone for doing something good. I couldn't punish someone for doing something bad if indeed there really is no free will. So um, scientists have wrestled with this. Um, they've even come up with the idea that all matter is actually conscious down to the electron. Electrons are conscious. Why did they come up with such a stupid idea? It's, it's because they have to account for where this consciousness came from. They have no, no way of doing it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to clarify. I think some people have made some comments on the side that you're not saying there's no naturalist explanation for free will, therefore the soul exists. You're right. saying no. free will itself is something we experience and we know yes. and is so integral to human yeah. life. Any adequate worldview should be able to count for free will. Yes. And if it can't, it counts against that free will, uh, that worldview. That on a world naturalistic view. worldview, it reduces everything down to chemicals in motion. And right. yet if right. we have souls and we're made in God's image, who is a person, right. it fits within the Christian or broader dualistic worldview. So it's not an exactly. argument the gaps. That's it's right. It's a gap and it's positive evidence that it fits. Yeah, and so, we have this other, these other arguments for the existence of the soul as well. Okay, good. Good stuff. All right, those of you listening, we're here with Lee Stroll. He's got a book, The Case for Heaven, that is just being released. We've got two free copies we want to give away signed as we get towards the end for the best questions. So I see some awesome questions coming up. Just make sure you bring those back in the end, and we want to spend some time on those. Uh, so here's what we've talked about. We've talked about how eternity is written on people's hearts, and the fear of death motivates us. You have a chapter on evidence that we're more than matter, and there's a soul, then you jump into near-death experiences. And I got to yeah. tell you, Lee, if I remember, it was about four or five years ago, I decided to read a book on near-death experiences. And I was pretty skeptical, and I kind of thought it was one of those bad arguments that Christian apologists shouldn't use. Yeah. 
I was pleasantly surprised by the evidence that can be laid out for the soul and the reality yes. of near-death experiences. Yes. You describe a similar skepticism. So talk about your journey diving into this and what you found. Yeah, I, re I was a skeptic on near-death experiences. I thought that it was um, uh, kind of a new agey idea. I thought that uh, certainly something like oxygen deprivation or the die gasps of a brain could explain this, uh, these hallucinations that people were having, that they mm -hmm. could be explained away. Uh, of course, we had some famous incidents where people manufactured, made up stories about okay. dying and going to heaven. Um, so that cast more doubt on it to me as well. Um, but as I investigated it, what I found are two things that really blew me away. Okay. First is the number of cases where we have corroboration that someone's immaterial spirit, their, their soul, their consciousness, separated from their physical body at the time of clinical death, and they saw things or heard things that it would not be possible for them to see or hear if their spirit had not separated from their physical body. Um, and I cite many examples in the book, mm -hmm. uh, just to give you a couple that are compelling. Uh, one of them uh, in, involves a woman named Maria who died in surgery. Uh, she describes her, her consciousness leaving her body. She watched the resuscitation efforts taking place. Her spirit uh, floated through the hospital, out of the hospital. And then she came back into her body and she said, by the way, there's a man's tennis shoe up on the roof of the hospital on the third story ledge. There's a dark blue left footed man's tennis shoe that has some wear over the little toe and the shoelaces tucked under the heel. And they went up there and sure enough, they found it just as she had described. That's an example of corroboration. I can't corroborate it when somebody says, oh, I went to heaven, and I met Jesus. I, I, I have no corroboration of that. But I do have corroboration in multiple cases of people's spirit separating from their body, their, their, their soul uh, continuing to be conscious uh, after physical or, or clinical death. Now, um, there's a case of Pamela Reynolds. Pamela Reynolds, a 35-year-old housewife, had a hemorrhaging in her brain, and they did this highly unusual surgery where they cooled her, they put her under deep anesthetic, they cooled her body to 60 degrees, they drained every drop of blood from her head, from her mm. brain. She had zero brain waves, zero. She was cl clinically dead. Um, they put earplugs in her like these, except they had the sound of 100 decibels going into her head, which is the equivalent of a subway train going right next to you. Her eyes were taped shut. And yet, she says she was totally conscious the whole time during this time, she was clinically dead. And she, um, she describes uh, going through a tunnel, meeting dead relatives, being in the light, the present, the, the, the uh, influence of God. And then she comes back into her body and um, she was able to describe things that she could not otherwise have seen. For instance, she described the very unusual nature of the instruments that were used in her surgery. They were covered up when she was in the, um, before she was um, uh, rendered unconscious mm. and her eyes were taped shut. There's no way she could have seen that otherwise. She recounted conversations from the surgery where one nurse said, oh, her artery's too small. What do we do? And the other nurse said, use the other leg. Um, so how do you explain that? Um, we have in fact, 31 cases of people who are blind, many of them blind since birth, and yet, during their near-death experience, they were able to see. They had visual or visual-like experiences. Mm. And then when they returned to their bodies, they were blind again, which one researcher said, this is medically impossible. Mm. Um, another study looked at almost 100 cases where, again, people made verifiable observations when they were clinically dead. And um, of those, 92% were absolutely accurate. Another 6% were almost absolutely accurate. Uh, there's a case of a seven-year-old girl in Idaho who drowned in a pool. She had um, zero brain waves. Um, she, she, her, her brain had swelled. She, was, um, uh, she had no heartbeat for over 20 minutes. Um, and um, 
somehow, after three days, she survived. She, was, she came back around. And she described how she had been conscious that whole time. And she described how one night she followed her family home from the hospital. And she watched what happened in that home. And she described what her mother had made for dinner. She described how her brother was playing with a G.I. Joe Jeep on the floor of the living room. She described what her father was doing, things she could not have otherwise known. Mm. And here's a girl who had no theological framework, um, et cetera, uh, no preconceptions about what the afterlife would be like. She's just, and she said, by the way, I met Jesus. And uh, she described that. So um, what do you do with that stuff where there is corroboration? So my conclusion is that um, the corroboration tells us that our consciousness, our spirit, our soul does survive our clinical death to some degree. Uh, we don't know how long, but I think it's good evidence. In fact, Dr. Dierick said something interesting. She said, all we need is one documented case That's to true. prove it. And we have multiple, dozens of cases with incredible documentation. Um, so that, that was the first thing that blew my mind about mm -hmm. near-death experience. The second thing that blew my mind was an interview I did, a whole chapter in the book, with John Burke. Uh, John is a Christian pastor. In fact, he and I used to be on the staff of a church together about 25 years ago. I, I've known John for, for years. Huh. And um, he, uh, uh, he researched a thousand near-death experiences. And his conclusion, he wrote a book about it called Imagine Heaven, mm -hmm. New York Times bestseller. But um, he, he said, first of all, when you, when you don't look at how people interpret what happened, but you look at how they actually described what happened, and you look at the core that's common to these near-death experiences, he said they are consistent with Christian theology. Hmm. Those were the two things that blew my mind about near-death experiences. All right, so let me play the skeptic, which you do with your guests. What about the cases that I've studied about uh, Mormons having near-death experiences, atheists having near-death experiences. I believe there's some cases of Hindus and Muslims. This isn't uniquely a Christian phenomena. So it's not, but find me one case where somebody meets Shiva. <laughs> they don't meet Shiva. Hmm. They don't go through reincarnations. There's, there's no cases like that. Um, hmm. You know, people interpret things. So here's, here's a point. For instance, um, a Hindu might describe encountering this figure in in white uh the white so bright it was like woven out of light and he has a book now she might interpret that as being the the, the book of karma and looking at her karma that she needs to deal with in a future life but that's an interpretation that could be consistent with christian theology too um so um and, and the other thing to remember and i think this is the key these per people are not irreversibly dead mm. The Bible says we're appointed once to die and then the judgment. Um, we're not, they're not in, uh, irreversibly dead. They are clinically dead. Some of them have been declared dead. One woman woke up in the morgue and uh, was able to describe the ties that the doctors were wearing uh, when she was dead in the uh, emergency room. So um, they're clinically dead, but they're not irreversibly dead. And I think that explains why we don't have a judgment that comes later. The Bible says there's two judgments, one for our deeds, one for uh, of Christians, and, and um, uh, one, the, the final judgment that determines ultimately where we're going to spend eternity and so forth. Um, why not? Why don't people go through that? Because they're not irreversibly dead. That judgment comes at the end of time when history is, is consummated. Um, so I, I think there's ways to look at this. In his book, Imagine Heaven, John it goes through chapter and verse and, and, and backs up, um, as he did yeah. in many cases in my interview, how this is all consistent with Christian theology. And by the way, you talk about atheists who die. You know, there are many cases, as many as 23 percent of people who have hellish experiences yeah. like Howard Storm. Howard Storm was an atheist. He was the chairman of the art department and a tenured professor at a secular university. He died. He had the most hellish experience 
uh, that it's hard for him to this day to even talk about it. He said, I was reduced to roadkill by demons that tore him limb from limb. It, it was horrific. And he called out to Jesus, and Jesus rescued him. Well, when he came back into his body, he, he not only renounced his atheism, he not only embraced Jesus as his Lord and Savior, he resigned his tenured professorship and chairmanship of the art department at Secular University and became the pastor of a tiny little church where he serves wow. to this day. That's how, that's how profound these experiences are. And one other thing, Sean, um, I used to think, and I think you used to think, that there are other explanations for this, things that can account for this. There's an article in The Lancet, which of course is the prestigious medical journal in Britain, that, that concludes by saying that none of the alternative explanations for near-death experiences hold up when they're thoroughly examined. Wow. So th th that's a power. They can't yeah. replicate them. If this were oxygen deprivation, we would see people where that kind of oxygen deprivation happens, having these kind of, they don't have this kind of experience. These are not hallucinations which are um, disconnected and vague and, and, and ethereal. These are so vivid, they change people's lives. Okay, so you talked about uh, case for the soul, case for near-death experiences. What's the move to the Christian version of heaven? And I realize this is probably case for Christ, case for real Jesus, all yeah. of these kind of on top of it. But what convinces you most that the Christian version of heaven is the right one? Yeah, I interviewed a philosopher named Dr. Chad Meister. And... Um, uh, he built what he calls uh, the pyramid to heaven. And so what we did is we started out in a very broad question, what is truth? And then we looked at the different worldviews in the world, pantheism, okay. atheism, theism. Um, we evaluated those and um, we came to the question or to the conclusion that theism explains the world most convincingly. But then ultimately, as we get toward the peak of the, of the, um, um, pyramid, it involves the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus died and then three days later was resurrected from the dead, he's an eyewitness to the afterlife. Uh, not only that, but it validates his claim of being the unique son of God. So he created the afterlife. And so um, I believe the resurrection is really the key. That um, so I believe Jesus' opinion or his his viewpoint on heaven, his evaluation of what heaven is like, should be controlling. Should be the one that we lean upon because he's the eyewitness. He's the creator of it. And I think, as we've talked about before, uh, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus I think is clear and compelling. I think it's powerful and persuasive, and uh, it is the key element to the case for heaven. Now, you have two chapters on this, and so we could spend an entire show and beyond on hell, but you can't have a yeah. book without talking about hell. In some ways, asking you to give one or two thoughts is not fair <laughs> to the seriousness of hell. Yeah. But maybe just tell us one or two points you bring out in the book that can help begin to make sense of it. Well, a couple of things. I think um, we have to understand that uh, there's a lot of metaphors used when you talk about hell as well, flames and uh, darkness, which are probably metaphors uh, because okay. the flames would light up the place. You wouldn't have darkness. And even Calvin uh, and other um, uh, theologians from history conceded that these were metaphorical. Most, most I think, Christian thinkers would say that. Um, also, I think it's important to understand, and I document this with a couple in a couple of different ways, that um, Jesus' teaching should be understood that there are degrees of suffering in hell, that it's not one size fits all, that God's justice uh, also, I think, would demand that um, people would have an experience in hell commensurate with um, their, the, the sin in their life. So I don't think Adolf Hitler, for instance, is going to have the same experience in hell as my next door neighbor who is an atheist and doesn't want anything to do with God. In fact, he thinks heaven would be hell because he'd have to be in the presence of this God who he hates. Uh, I think you're going to have they're going to have different experiences. And I think okay. that's important to keep in mind. Keep in mind. Um, there is a trend among young pastors, especially uh, toward annihilationism, uh, which is the view that uh, the uh, unrepentant will not spend eternity in hell but uh, they will be snuffed out of existence, perhaps after a short period of, 
of punishment, um, but, or they would just not be given eternal life and they will cease to exist. This is a growing phenomenon. Um, uh, one person I uh, quote in the book says he thinks in 10 or 20 years, it's going to be the dominant position among wow. evangelical Christians. Um, now, I believe it's a secondary issue. Um, John Stott, who is sort of the evangelical pope of the 20th century, later in his life bought into annihilationism. So I don't think we ought to be using the word heresy when John Stott's involved. <laughs> so um, I, I was honestly, uh, I was surprised at how robust the biblical case is for annihilationism. It, it took me by surprise. I was interviewed twice this last week by journalists who are annihilationists, one a pastor and one a, a reporter for a Christian publication. And they told me privately, they said, I'm an annihilationist. Thank you for giving a balanced view of annihilationism in your book. You, you really told it well. You presented our position fairly. And I think I did. I conclude that it falls short. I do not believe it's the biblical position. Um, I think they can make a pretty darn good case for it, but not a strong enough case. I don't think, okay. you know, when you look in uh, Daniel um, and you look in the uh, Jesus talking about the sheep and the goats, uh, where there's a parallelism between the eternal suffering of the unrepentant and the eternal life of the believer. There's a parallelism there you, you just can't ignore. Um, uh, so I, I think there's those kind of problems with annihilationism. Uh, so, um, but I think it's, it's, it's growing. It's growing. There are more and more um, young Christian pastors who are endorsing this. Um, I just don't think it's as biblically supported as the idea of hell being everlasting. Two more questions for you, Lee, and then we will jump to questions from our, our viewers here. Yeah. One is, I thought it was fascinating that you entertained the idea of repentance after death. Yeah, I don't know that what I entertained it as much as I investigated it. <laughs> Invest, fair enough. Yeah, Tell me yeah. your thoughts on the possibility of that. There's a new book out on this topic published by University Press. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, academic book um, making the argument that in certain conditions, some people will be given an opportunity for redemption after their death in this world. Um, it's an interesting concept. When you look at Martin Luther, he wrote, and I cite this in the book, two letters suggesting that he believed in the possibility of redemption after physical death. That surprised me to see yeah. that Martin Luther would buy into it. Um, so, um, again, you can make a pretty good case for it when you say that um, perhaps this explains uh, children who die. Um, maybe their consciousness is expanded in the next world and they're allowed to make a choice uh, up or down in, in a sense uh, to receive Christ or not. What about people who live in a, in a place that's um, isolated and they don't hear the gospel during their lifetime? Would they perhaps have an opportunity just be out of God's fairness and justice to um, um, hear the gospel and respond to it after their death? Um, what about Jews in World War II who heard a distorted gospel from the Nazis, um, would they be given an opportunity to hear the real gospel? So these are interesting questions. Uh, the biggest argument against it is in Hebrews, it says we are appointed once to die and then the judgment. Yeah. The problem with that, though, is it doesn't say we are appointed once to die and then immediately the judgment. It doesn't say that. Mm. And if you look at the next sentence, it also, and I, I have to look at my notes, but the next sentence, there's a 2,000 year gap between A and B um, that the writer is talking about. So um, I'm not sure that verse necessarily uh, eliminates this possibility. I don't buy into it. I think there's a, there's a lot of um, other issues that I raise in the book about it, um, but I think it's interesting and um, I can't wait to read this new book um, called um, Postmortem Opportunity is the name of it, uh, by a wow. Christian scholar, uh, published by University. So, wow. yeah, and, and Martin Luther, I mean, come on. <laughs> That's fat. I had Craig Blomberg on the show recently. He has a book, Can yeah. You Still Believe in God? And he said it's a possibility, something like a near-death experience 
yeah. could be an opportunity. I think at best we can say we know God is good and yes. ultimately just. Yes. And we don't know how that's going to look. And this may exactly. be a way that he uses. We can't say definitively, but yeah. it's it's possible. Can't rule we can't re- we can't really build a strong biblical case for it. Yeah. But uh, theologically, as you say, based on the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the fairness of God, um, you can make a pretty good argument for it. And you know, at the same time, it is speculative. And um, but I think it's worth um, exploring. And so I do so in the book. All right, friends, if you have questions for Elise Troll, I'm going to skip my my last question was about reincarnation. I think your answer oh. is awesome. Oh, thanks. Y- <laughs> people are going to have to pick up your book to get your interview with oh, there you Tice go. as you interact yeah. with it there because I want to respect their questions. There's a ton here. If I've missed it, repost it at the end. Uh, but here's one I'm sure you've thought about, kind of a practical question, Lee. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. your response. Uh, Daryl Anderson says, can I enjoy heaven mm. if some loved ones are not there? It's a great question. I actually deal with this in um, another book I did. Um, the, uh, I think it's um, The Case for Faith. I have an interview with J.P. Merlin on hell, mm. and we deal with this in that book. We touch on it in this book as well. It is a great question. And I don't think, again, we can get into speculation how this would work. But I think C.S. Lewis got it right. When he said, I think we can trust God that he will arrange it in such a way that the refusal of some to repent and turn to Christ, resulting in their eternal banishment from heaven, um, will not have veto power over our enjoyment of heaven. How does God work that out? I do not know. But I, I, think, he's, I think he's onto something there. That, that, that's fair. I also think of how we see through a glass darkly and uh, we're going to see with clarity in heaven through a lens that God does in yeah. some way maybe we can't grasp now. Uh, great answer. All right. Andrew Green asks one. He says, what is the strongest counter argument against the case for heaven? In other words, if you are going to be a skeptic and forced to argue the other side, what do you think is the best pushback against heaven? Well, there are uh, a lot of scientists who deny the existence of the soul uh, and of consciousness. They believe free will is an illusion and so forth. Um, okay. And they argue that pretty vociferously. Now, I don't think that necessarily um, would um, preclude the, the existence of heaven. Um, even if physicalism were true, God could still accomplish what he needs to accomplish. But um, you would have to kick the legs out of, I think, all three of these areas uh, pretty solidly. For instance, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the near-death experiences, and the existence of the soul. Um, and I deal with a lot of other reasons, too, in the book. But I sure. think those are kind of the, the, the three-legged stool. Uh, you'd have to kick the legs out of all three. And, you know, I've spent many years on the resurrection issue. And, um, you know, as you know, Dr. Gary Habermas is completing a 5,000-page book or books, <laughs> where he's um, looking at every conceivable objection to the resurrection. And I, I think uh, uh, we're, we're going to really enjoy going through that when, he, when it comes out. But I think it stands up to scrutiny. Okay. Very fair. Here's a, a fascinating question, more, more practical ministry focus. Jekyll and Hyde says, when talking to a non-believer about heaven, what's the most important thing to have a productive interaction? And I think this could be practically or like content wise yeah you know i just gave a sermon this last weekend at uh, lake point church in dallas texas and it was about our fear of death and uh, that's a connection point i think for a lot of people um you know les and i were having um lunch recently and and beatrice uh, started to cry and we said what's wrong she's i almost didn't come into work today we lost a family member to covid and um, I thought, here's a young woman, 18 years old or so, never thought about death before, never thought about heaven, never thought about hell. Why should she? She's 18 years old. But now death has come knocking on her door and she's asking questions. Um, uh, 29% of Americans either have had a family member die of COVID or they know somebody who's died of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people are asking these questions. And I think th- what this is doing, Sean, it's surfacing this fear of death that people have that we talk about in the book and that Clay Jones does in his book, Immortal. Um, And I think that's a connection.
inflection point for people? What is the answer to it? And in my sermon, I rippled through all of the um, non-Christian approaches to take to it and showed that they just don't work. They're bankrupt. Mm. And, and then turned to what Hebrews 2.15 says, that Jesus is the answer to those who are enslaved to a fear of death. And to talk about this idea of Jesus talking about heaven as a home. I think people, I relate to that. Um, um, and I think talking about those terms, I think makes, I think it whets people's appetite for heaven. Hmm. That's a great response. Um, here's a question you'll like. It says, Sean, when are you going to have Kyle on your program? Yeah, doggone it. You know what? <laughs> no. I did an interview with a, a radio host who has a, a whole bunch of radio stations up in the Midwest. And uh, she said, I just had your son on my show the other day. That's he awesome. was awesome. We want him to be a regular. <laughs> I haven't had him on a YouTube channel. Interviewed him on my blog. We've had him. We just interviewed him a couple weeks ago for the podcast. Uh, uh, but awesome. in due time, I love to have a colleague and fellow <laughs> son of a father apologist. Yeah. We've got a lot to talk about. That's uh, true. Fun. All right. We got a few more that are coming. Some excellent questions for you. Range yeah. of them. Ryan Priori says, how can we have a relationship with God and not be absolutely certain that he's really there? It depends on what you mean by absolutely certain. I think we mm -hmm. have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that he exists. Uh, Romans 1 verse 20 says we see it from creation, things we can't explain, cosmology, the origin of the universe, uh, physics, the fine tuning of the universe, the information in DNA, um, the moral argument for the existence of God. Um, the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I think we have a robust uh, set of reasons to believe that God does exist. And then revelation, scripture. Um, uh, and we could talk all day about why we believe that is reliable. Uh, so that's a, I think you have a, I, I believe beyond a reasonable doubt that God exists. Do I wish he would tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, Lee, how's it going? Um, you know what? If that happened to me, I'd probably explain it away. <laughs> and I probably, oh yeah, that was I. I, uh, I, I got some funny uh, fajitas at the Mexican mm. restaurant tonight, and I was just hallucinating. You know, um, and I think that's true of a lot of people. I interviewed Dallas Willard once uh, for a book, and Dallas Willard said, you know, if God wrote in the sky, "I'm here," people would say, "Oh yeah, that's a trick. That's uh, sky writing, or that's uh, an illusion, or that." People would explain that away. Um, and, and so I think we have sufficient evidence. Um, you know, some people say you have to have extraordinary evidence for an extraordinary claim. Mm -hmm. Saying there's a God is an extraordinary claim, so you need extraordinary evidence. I say two things to that. Number one, no, you don't need extraordinary evidence. You just need good evidence. And number two, I believe we have it. You have a chapter with uh, Scott McKnight, and you ask him some yeah. of the theological questions that I see popping up on the side yeah. here. Uh, so let me throw one of these in here to get your thoughts. It's one of the most common okay. questions I get. Will our pets be with us in heaven? That's the number one question. Seriously. Are you serious? The number one question. It is the number one question that you get. Okay. And it's, I understand it. I get it. I had a dog I loved when I was growing up, and... I'd love to be reunited with him. I think the fact that there will be animals in heaven is clear. Uh, animals were created before the fall. Uh, we have um, you know, uh, things about lions laying down with the lambs and so forth. So I think there will be animals in heaven, and animals do have a rudimentary soul. They're not made in God's image, but they have a rudimentary mm -hmm. soul. And, uh, but the question is, will my dog, Fido, be in heaven? People are on both sides of this issue. Um, mm. Uh, you know, Alan Gomes, who you may know from Viola University, says, yeah. no, 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 no. There would be no pets in heaven. Um, uh, other people like Johnny Erickson Tata uh, say, wouldn't it be just like God in his lavish mm. grace to surprise us with something like that? Can I cite chapter and verse? No, uh, it's pure speculation. But knowing the overwhelming graciousness of God, it would be just like him to surprise us one day with my dog, Nikki, coming up to me and climbing into my lap like he used to do when I was a little kid. Um, so we don't know the answer to that. Um, I kind of lean toward yes, okay. but uh, a lot of people lean toward no. So, hmm. Interesting. I always found it fascinating that animals are in the creation. They're yeah. saved on the ark. 
all over the New Testament, metaphors and examples, all the way to the lion laying down with the lamb. Yeah. The animals are everywhere in Scripture and are part of God's yeah. good creation. Right. So it makes it it gives me the suspicion that there will be. But you're right. We don't know definitively. There's no yeah. chapter and verse. Right. Here's here's a common one that I get a lot as well. By the way, I, Alan Gomes doesn't particularly like his parrot. He has a pet parrot or a parakeet. <laughs> I think it's a parakeet. Okay. He doesn't particularly like it, so I don't think he's motivated uh, on this issue. You know, I, I I get it. That does shape how we assess the evidence. That's there you fair. go. That's fair. <laughs> Uh, will there be free will in heaven? If so, will people be able to sin freely? If not, then do we really have free will while we're there? I think he's saying, if not, yeah. are we really truly ourselves still if we can't choose? Yeah, I noticed that you had Randy Alcorn on recently and yeah. talked about this topic. I thought he did a great yeah. job in answering that. Um, and I believe, yes, we will have free will in heaven. And then you say, well, what's the difference then? Uh, why would we not choose to sin? Um, I, I think there's a couple answers to that. One is, um, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about us having the righteousness of Christ. And, um, you know, Christ, of course, can't sin, does not sin. Um, right. And, and um, what does it mean for us to have the righteousness of Christ? Is that, um, you know, does that mean that, that even though we have free will, we would, we would always make the choice not to sin? Um, also, um, the, Satan and, uh, and his minions are going to be thrown into the lake of fire at the end, and um, they won't be there to tempt us. So we're not going to have those kind of temptations that we have necessarily in this world. Um, um, so, yeah, I believe we will have free will. I believe this righteousness of Christ that we will have um, is going to um, kind of protect us from making wrong decisions. And also, we'll be able to look back on our life. And we'll be able to see the effects of sin on our life in a way that we've never recognized it before. Uh, one of the things that a lot of these near-death experience people have gone through is a life review. And, yeah. um, and, and they see how their sin, how their wrongdoing rippled out and didn't just mm. affect this person, but then that affected this person, that affected this person. And they see the insidiousness of the sins that we commit. And we will have that perspective. And I think we're going to have a whole new attitude about sin and our, our, our conviction not to fall into it. I think that's a great answer that there's internal transformation and external transformation. Yeah, exactly. Both of those are at play. All right, last yeah. question, and then we will announce uh, a couple of the <laughs> gifts that we give away. You know, I did not write that one down. Oh, man. I'm that's a good one. Here. Pets, free will. Oh, pets. Yeah. Trying to keep a record here for I like the free will one. That's um, a good one. Okay, good. We'll come back to that. Last one. Uh, you can give kind of your Twitter answer on this one. Uh, yeah. Kena Lynch says, The Bible teaches there will be no marriage in heaven, but are there passages that teach we will recognize each other and still have our deep relationships with our family? Terrific question. And um, there's some disagreement on this among mm. scholars. When you say there's no marriage in heaven, not every scholar believes that. In fact, um, uh, Scott McKnight, who I interviewed for this book, believes there will be marriage in heaven. Um, now, Jesus specifically said, uh, and I, I wish I had, uh, I should have my Bible sitting here, but I don't. Um, uh, let me quote Jesus and listen carefully to what he says. Um, don't skim over it. Do you have any background music you can play? <laughs> I was about to say that awkward <laughs> pause on YouTube. We've all become accustomed to during COVID, those awkward moments. Right. It okay, be a lot more hey, here awkward. it is. Here it is. Um, Jesus says, and this is, by the way, this is really the old, everything hinges on this verse. Hmm. And it's all in all three uh, synoptic gospels. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, very significant. This is what he says. Um, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, Scott McKnight's interpretation of this is saying nobody will get married in heaven. There will be no new marriages in heaven. 
Um, because it says people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Uh, a woman is given in marriage traditionally. A man gets married traditionally, and that won't happen in heaven. And, and then it said, he said uh, they will be like the angels in heaven. And some interpret that to say, well, the angels don't get married and don't have a, I don't, you know, so that, that means that we won't get married in heaven or there'll be no marriages in heaven. But in Luke, when Luke describes this encounter, he makes the point, he, he adds a little detail where Jesus says, um, he adds that the angels don't die. The angels are eternal. And Scott McKnight's point is one of the reasons that we get married is to procreate so that our descendants will uh, continue and they'll have a lineage. Well, we right. won't need that in heaven because we're going to be like the angels. We're going to be eternal. We're always going to. So you don't need to have children to carry on the family name and to carry. You know. So it's an interesting you have to read the book to get his whole argument. But that's the gist of his argument that there, mm -hmm. there will be marriage in heaven. I, you know, I'm about I'm in my 50th year of marriage to Leslie. I hope there's marriage in heaven because, I, I, you know, I, I this is one of the greatest experiences of my life to be married to Leslie. Mm -hmm. um, but um, probably no new marriages. Now, having said that, there are a lot of people on the other side. Sure. Um, Randy Elkhorn's on the other side. He Alan is. Gomes is on the other side. A lot yeah. of other people. I think most people, I'll, I'll be honest, I think are on the other side. I think and so. Say, yeah. Um, now, having said that, one of the points that someone made is, because they said, well, I want to be with my wife. I want to be. And they make the point that God in his love will never take something away in heaven that is not replaced by something even better. Hmm. And no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what heaven is going to be like, according to the Bible. Um, what does that mean? As Randy Elkhorn points out, the metaphor is that the church is the bride of Christ and that we'll all be, in a sense, you know, metaphorically married to God right. in heaven. And that may very well be true. That doesn't mean we still won't have a uh, relationship of some sort with someone we spent our marriage life with in this world. So I trust that God is going to do the right thing. Hmm. And I trust that if there is not marriage in heaven, he's going to replace it with something better. And that I'm not going to be lamenting the fact that uh, I'm not married to Leslie. Um, he's going to arrange it so that um, our desire to know each other fully will continue in the, in the life to come in some way. That's kind of the way I look at it. Well, I think that's great. I appreciate it in the book in here you bring in like sometimes theologians differ. We don't know for yeah. sure. Here's reasons for and against. But the bottom line is I'm in my second decade to uh, marriage with my wife. And I yeah. hope there's a kind of marriage like you do. But I also have friends in yeah. broken marriages who are kind of like, yes. I hope there's not marriage. And what do you, you know, do if there's and, multiple marriages? Well, that <laughs> you know, if, if, it's a, a divorce and then, you know, yeah. I know it gets sticky. Great question. And, yeah, you know, we don't have the answers. A lot of this is speculative. Uh, we just have to trust that God, in His creativity and in His love and His grace and His kindness and His fairness, is going to um, create a circumstances for us that will be unimaginably good. Very, very fair. Well, I got a ton more questions for you. I apologize to those we did not get to. There were questions about the rapture. Mm. Uh, yeah, people watching a number from the Philippines. You and I are speaking to church OCF there together yes. in a while, which is which is exciting. Sorry if I missed some of your live questions. Uh, let's give these books away. But first, if you're watching, make sure you hit subscribe. Lee, we've got some crazy shows coming up that are fascinating. I've got a, a dialogue with a progressive Christian about the Bible and homosexuality. Oh, wow. Atheist, the genetically modified skeptic coming on. We're just going to do a live Q&A so people can hear how a Christian and an atheist respond to questions differently. Awesome. I've got a professor coming on to talk about specifically how progressive Christians try to encourage conservative Christians to have a paradigm shift in their beliefs. Really mm. interesting research. So mm. make sure you hit subscribe. But Lee, here's the questions. You hey, pick... let, let me ask, oh. Sean, um, have you ever done a show on annihilationism? Uh, so Chris Date and Paul Copeland, yes. who are yes. editing a book together, yes. Yes. have contacted me and said as it gets closer to release, oh, wonderful. they're going to come on and discuss, debate it. But we're waiting for Great. that book to get closer and the research to be done. Great. 
Paul Copana is the one I interviewed in my book. Um, and I've read all the, not all, I've read extensively mm. the writings on the other side. So good. I'm glad you're doing that. It's great. Yeah, I, I think the two best questions were uh, the one about marriage. So I think okay. that touches the heart. And the one about free will. Marriage and the one about free will. All right. So yeah. Kina, if you will email me through my website, it's different this time. Uh, the email is just sean at seanmcdowell.org. It'll go to my assistant, sean at seanmcdowell.org, and just say, hey, it's Kina, won the book. I'll forward it to Lee. We'll make sure you get a signed copy. And then yep. Free Will, it was an apologetics. Uh, I missed the name. I apologize. If I scroll through here, I might find it. But you had kind of an apologetics tagline. I'll recognize it when it comes in. Just email and say you had the question about Free Will. And we'll send you a sign. Give us your name, too, and we'll personalize it for you. <laughs> yep. Lee, your book, again, is fantastic. I love all your case Thanks. books, but The Case for Heaven, again, is just timely, and it's interesting, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Those of you who Thank did you. not win a book, I'm sorry. You can pre-order <laughs> it now, and I promise yeah. you, if you've enjoyed Lee's other books, or even if you didn't enjoy his other books, <laughs> this one will not disappoint. Lee, hang on just five seconds after so sure. I can—, I can Say thanks, but uh, sure. Thank really you for having me, Sean. You. Love oh. you. You do. You're awesome. You're just awesome. Oh my goodness, you're you're too kind. Thanks for all your partnership with us at Biola too. Sure.